0: Welcome to the Gig Boss Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Meckler. Today, we've got Matt Mazurka on the show. Matt is also known as Gigamesh, a wildly successful DJ, boasting something crazy like 3.6 million monthly listeners on Spotify and whose music has been used in commercials, video games, has been played on radio stations around the world. Incredibly, Matt went back to the drawing board, became a coder, and is now co-founder. Is that right?
1: Yep. Co-founder
0: of Sound.xyz, a company built using Web3 technology which I assume means that it's built on the blockchain. I gotta, we gotta talk about this a little bit. Uh, and aims to solve the problem of the fan to artist relationship. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you've heard me refer to this phenomenon as the quote unquote, Spotify problem. I'm so pumped that he's here to talk to us about everything he's doing. Please welcome to the podcast, Matt Mazurka.
1: <laughs> wow, what an intro. Well done. Sounds yeah, like hey, thanks. doing this well. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, we've you know we've got like seven or eight episodes recorded now, and uh, and none of them are published yet. So it's like everything starts launching <laughs> March first, but I feel like I'm getting in the swing of it, no doubt about it.
1: Nice, yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for uh, bringing me on, man.
0: Yeah, man, it's good to have you. So hey, I feel like we could do a whole podcast on your career as GigaMesh and a whole podcast on Sound X Y Z, but we'll try to like cover a little bit uh, a little bit of both. Um, let's talk about your giga mesh days, uh, which I don't think are in the past. I saw that you did a DJ show last summer. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Occasionally I'll get asked to book. Uh, I'll get booked to play a show. And, and you know, like if it, if it's like not like a crazy amount of traveling, uh, and then the price is right. I'll do it.
0: Yeah. Cool.
1: But yeah. It's not something like I'm actively pursuing right now. Cause I'm just too busy.
0: Yeah, man, that's wild. Uh, so, you know, what, like, how did you get started as a producer? What was the, maybe what was the first song that you remixed?
1: Um, true. Uh, that's a good question. I think, I don't know. I think the, the first one that I, that I put online and like promoted, I think was like a bootleg remix of the singer Leaky Lee. I'm not even sure if she's performing anymore. Um, but she had like a couple like indie hits and like the late, uh, Uh, I don't even know what that time period was called, 2000 to 2010, somewhere in there. And, um, yeah. Uh, and from there, I, I like mainly did like bootleg remixes and, and realized that that might, might be like an entry point to having like a full-time career in the music industry. Cause like that whole culture, like remix culture was like getting started around that time. And, um, and then I think what, what basically like made me go full-time, it was like a few things, but one of the main ones was I did this remix contest for this artist, uh, Wale, rapper. Yeah. He still performs a lot. Um, and he uh, was managed by this guy, Daniel... Uh, I can't remember his last name. Um, but he, um, he also managed this newer singer at the time, Mike Posner who was undiscovered or, or at least like, you know, just like touring colleges and stuff. Uh, he had a fan base, especially yeah. like where he went to school in and, and, um, uh, Illinois, I think, and um, and was getting some traction. I hadn't heard of him and, uh, but they were offering me money to, to do this remix. Cause like, he heard my Wally entry. I didn't even win the, the contest, but he liked it. And he, he was uh-huh. like, hey, do you want to remix my other artists? Um, so I think that was like my first paid thing. And, um, and one thing led to another after it came out. And I slowly realized that what his manager had done is he had reached out to several producers like myself that were kind of obscure at the time. And, um, and then shopped all, that, all those remixes to radio to see like, which one would bubble to the top. Like a completely like I think it's become pretty common now, but I think he was like the first first manager to try this, um, and and it worked. Like suddenly my remix was good. actually one of the other ones was in, in the Billboard Top 100 as well, which is crazy. Uh, but yeah, mine ended up bubbling up to like number six, and and suddenly it was like this pop hit. Um, so that was like kind of like what kick started my career in, in terms of, like, the pop music direction, but it also, uh, it also like, got me sort of, like, my manager, my agent. I started touring internationally. Wow. Um, yeah. And then from there, it was, like, um, you know, a, a matter of, like, figuring out what direction I wanted to go because my goal wasn't to be, like, a pop music producer. Sure. I was... I, I, I was like still honestly like trying to figure out like what type of music I wanted to work on It just so happens that I realized early on oh, I could actually like make a living as a musician if I go the dance music route and, and sure. I, I love dance music um and um especially like electronic stuff I was like very influenced by Daft Punk and like the Chemical Brothers and stuff like that um uh so yeah it, it just felt right um but then you know I, I don't know i suppose i could just do you want me to just like ramble on about like the well the you know I wanted. To,
0: yeah, you could for sure i you know i wanted to jump in and ask like so for our listeners that that song you're talking about it that's cooler than me right that posner song yeah yeah and so cooler than me did you do the original mix and a remix? Like it seems like there's under your name there's a there's a cooler than me that has 371 million streams on Spotify, which like kind of makes me giggle. Like that is that's outrage. That's those are outrageous numbers. And then you have a remix of that same song as well. So did you do both of those?
1: It started with the remix but with my name attached to it, and then and that okay. was like I don't know, like four and a half minutes long or something. It was when I think the the order of operations was that he he released a mixtape I think for free to, to his fans just like this you know the giveaway and then his manager shopped around for all the remixes then he got signed like I think this was already kind of in motion he got signed by I think it was Jive Records um, which was owned by Sony and who knows what it is now but um, so it's basically like a major record deal and then they came back to me and they're like hey um would you be game to cut this down to a single length? And that's when I made like the naive newbie musician mistake, not having a manager, not having a lawyer. They sent me this contract from, I think it was Sony. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, just like, I, I already got paid for the remix. It was work for hire. Um, they just want me to cut it down to a single length. My main concern was, hmm, I don't know if I necessarily like want my name in the the track name because like i don't know if i would, like want to be like permanently like attached to this artist who's blowing up yeah yeah um and because i was still trying to figure out what did i what i wanted to do musically um, that was a huge in retrospect favor to them because yeah. they wanted to market this as like his single um, but you know i was in the credits and and that was cool um, but yeah i shouldn't have signed this contract without asking for some like royalty uh, cause I probably could have. And, um, but so you know, what would you, know you have done,
0: what would you have done today? If you had been presented with that contract today, you'd bring it to a manager, you'd bring it to a lawyer. What would you do?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, as I understand it, like it's pretty standard for a producer on something like that to be able to get like 2% or something yep. small, but it's like for a big hit, that's
0: huge. That's huge. Right. Um, yeah. So it goes to it goes to Billboard number six. Mm -hmm. What's going through your mind? You have a track that's completely exploding, right? This is like everybody's dream. Like, what's going through your mind when you're when the first time you realize that you've got a song that's blowing up?
1: Yeah, it was really exciting. I didn't I didn't know it was blowing up until my brother texted me. I was in a subway, or (laughs) maybe he was. He 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 texted me. He was in a subway and he was hearing my version of the song on the radio and like. He wanted to like confirm, like, is this actually yours?
0: Uh, and, is this actually uh, yours? I actually and, and, yeah, you. and it was
1: it was surreal because like I didn't I didn't realize the full extent of like what they were trying to do. Like to me it was like that like thinking of like getting a song on billboard was like so outside of my imagination that yeah. um that I wasn't thinking like that could happen. And and I was viewing him still as just like this indie artist who was touring
0: colleges. Mm.
1: Uh so yeah, it was it was pretty exciting.
0: That's wild. That's wild. It's it, you know it's a good lesson for our listeners who are getting into the, into some you know working in collaboration or like uh, working with up and coming artists. Like you never know what a track could do. So protecting yourself in that way, going to going to a entertainment lawyer, going to somebody that can understand the contract that you've got. Um, you know when you were uh, you know Jana Jana sang on a couple of your of your songs and. Um, when she got, was in American Idol season ten, she got this contract that was like crazy thick, you know. And we were like, I don't know what to do with this, so we brought it to Loman Abdo in Minneapolis and had them read through it. And we kind of bartered with them so we didn't have to pay five hundred dollars an hour or six hundred dollars an hour or whatever it was. Oh, nice. Um, I worked really with them actually. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I I can't remember what it was for, but um, yeah. Too late apparently.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, so you, you mentioned that you toured really hard, uh, or at least that you started doing international tours after your first thing started sort of blowing up. Uh, wh- what did those tours look like? Were you... I mean, you mentioned you had a manager. Did you have somebody that was on the road, like handling your merch, managing the tour, driving a bus or something like that? Or were you like roughing it on your own, you know, backpacking? <laughs> like, how, how did that look?
1: Um, it was like... Uh well (laughs) later on i actually was roughing it a little bit because i opened for some bands and that really gave me some perspective and like how different it is for like a touring dj versus a touring band and like it's it gave me so much appreciation for the work that they go through um it's such a different lifestyle because if you're a dj especially now um like it used to be when i was getting started like expected that you have uh you at least like use vinyl. I think that was still like kind of expected for a lot of DJs that you're use that you're actually using turntables. Serato was becoming popular. So like, you're not actually using vinyl, but you know, like, you know what you're doing in terms of bead matching and um, all that stuff was considered important. Now, all you have to do is bring a USB stick. You don't even need to bring two. Like you're using <laughs> two CD games. You just plug one USB stick into one of them. They're connected already. Um, if you want, you can like, the beat matching is handled for you. Um, that I think that's still a little taboo, but but yeah, and then like a lot of like up and coming producers and DJs just like use these controllers that, uh, that kind of do everything. So yeah, it's like a very honestly like Blissful lifestyle. I guess. Yep. I, I mean, yeah. You, you still have to, like travel and stuff, but you're getting paid to travel, and it's usually like exotic locations. So it was amazing. Like I can't complain <laughs> about any of it.
0: That's great. So when you're on stage doing that, uh, you know, you mentioned a USB stick. Is is you know, if you're putting in a USB stick, I would think that you would be like almost not even curating the show to the crowd. Like, are are you actually? feeling the vibe of the room and changing where you go based on the vibe of the room, based on the energy. Like to me, that's like a real true DJ is like reading the room, seeing what's flying, changing things on the fly. You know what I mean? Creating an energy space that, that is conducive to partying, dancing, whatever. Is that kind of how you functioned?
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of like a trade off. So like you want to be flexible enough to be able to make changes like in the moment. Um, but the more you try to do that, the more risky it is. And the more you can like completely kill the vibe if you don't get it right. Right. Um, So for me, uh, it was about, you know, like just having like prepared sort of like mini sets that I could kind of like mix and match. um, And that would save all of them. So I could like, if, if the vibe started to go one direction, I could just like go into an, like an older set and just start from there. Um, So that's, that's generally how it worked. Uh, And then like something i realized over time is like when i was starting out i was thinking like you have to make sure that you're that you're playing music that's going to um i was trying to be cool you know i was trying to play like the latest and greatest like you know like often like underground stuff um but over time i realized no you can play stuff that's like years old and and like usually that's what people want to hear anyway um so you're like you're kind of like balancing like a lot of those trade-offs
0: what what percentage of the music was actually yours that you remixed and what percentage was it you're just cycling through tunes that you like
1: um i would say it was about like a third of my own most of the time like for some sets if it was like a a festival or something it would be mostly my own yeah um but uh but yeah like usually like if it was like a bigger crowd and like it was like a built-in crowd for like a bar so like i one year i did um like a series at the brooklyn bowl um every month and and that's like a built-in crowd for the most part um so i knew that that like a a lot of the people in that room wouldn't know my own music and so yeah like for gigs like that i wouldn't play as much but but uh, if I was getting booked to play like a festival where like I was on like a poster,
0: then definitely I would play a lot of my own. Yeah, interesting. So, is there any particular show you played? Festivals, you played. I mean, Brooklyn Bowl—that's that's like legendary, right? Like you, you know, were you flying in from Minneapolis for those shows? Yep. So you were never really—you weren't based in New York. You were just flying in.
1: Yep, they they just fly me in for the weekend.
0: So, is there any particular show that that stands out as a as like an incredible? vibe incredible show incredible place to play
1: yeah there are there are many um i would say like the the one that felt the most epic was actually i got to do a south american tour and those crowds were always the most energetic um and i think like in most cases like they didn't really know who i was they might have heard my name but like that didn't matter at all. they just, they just loved to dance party. Um, yeah. and super, super late in the morning too. Like I played in Buenos Aires and it was like this big club, like bigger than most that I had played. Um, and there was like new year's Eve, like they had a ball drop and, um, and I started my set at like 3am. Um, it was like, yeah, but they were just raging, and the place was completely packed. Wow. Yeah, that, that was super fun.
0: Man, you know, you know, I experienced – I was touring around Mexico for a while with Todd Clouser, and we did like three or four weeks down there, and it was like everywhere we went, the show would start like two hours later than it said on the poster. There's a thing where, like, they don't show up for the time that the show starts, but they'll show up, and once they're there, they're like there, right? And they're like super in the, the – vibe-wise, it was – different than what i had experienced touring around the united states i mean it was a really cool vibe i really enjoyed playing uh, all over mexico and having those shows i mean it was like it wasn't we weren't starting at 3 a.m but it's like we were starting at 11 or midnight and going until 2 or 3 i mean it was like later than i was used to playing too in the states
1: yeah it amazes me that they're able to get up in the morning and like get there <laughs> go back to work at a normal time
0: yeah right so what about, uh, you know, you were signed to Kitsune in, in France. Did you do a lot of stuff in France because of that label connection?
1: Um Yeah, I, I played there pretty often. Um, but that was true of, of, like, a lot of, like, my, like, DJ peers. Um, I don't think, like, having um, that association necessarily uh, got me more gigs there. Maybe it did, but, um, yeah. but they also had, like, a presence in australia it was like right after i did my first dp with them i did a, an australian tour oh cool and uh yeah yeah so that that was definitely like a nice boost
0: for yeah sure. i've done some touring over there with young blood brass band and it's i always love the the vibes in france you know it's like they always treat at least like you know you, you mentioned it being different being a dj and being a, and being in a band like this is like a 10-piece band like really not roughing it. Like we're, we're in a tour bus and everything, but, um, you know, they, they have a chef there just to cook meals for the band. Like the venue doesn't even, the venue doesn't even give food to the people. You know, it's like, it's not that, that kitchen only exists to cook for the bands that come to play in the venues. You know, it's like that, that's true of France, uh, a little bit lesser, but also true in Germany. But the other places we visited, it's like the UK is a lot like the United States. It's like, they'll charge you for your bottles of water, you know, in the green room. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Spain is like that too. If I remember right, like, yeah, it's all about like treating the performer as almost as like royalty.
0: Yeah. which I love, I mean, it's, it's such a great feeling. And it's something like for me as a trumpet player, it's like you don't get to feel like that very often, you know, so you're Like in a band that's like horn heavy. You're like, all right, I'm the rock star tonight. This is fun. Yep. Uh, yeah. And it's, cool. it's
1: interesting how like that varies. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it varies around the United States as well. Like on the East coast, it's very cold you're just like you're just treated like anyone else um especially new york i think it's because it probably it's just like so expensive to like pick somebody up from the airport Yeah, but uh but in like san francisco and and the west coast in general i got kind of got like got more of like the the european vibe where like they really want to treat you
0: right yeah cool interesting that's great. I don't know that I really noticed that much of a difference. I mean, it's, when Youngblood's touring in the United States, it's it's really, it's like two fifteen passenger vans and like sleeping on floors sometimes, you know, it's like a lot less glamorous than touring in Europe. Touring in Europe is like, we could, if we could do six weeks, it's like we can really make a good amount of money with a 10-piece band. Uh, but yeah, in the States, it was like a whole, it was a whole nother animal to try and, try and continue to, to keep our fan base up in the United States. You know, it's like, why don't we just tour in Europe all the time? We have these conversations, uh, plenty of times where we're like, why don't we just do that all the time instead of going, instead of doing the United States.
1: So does youngbloods have more, uh, more traction overseas in general?
0: Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah. A huge I'm a fa- I mean, huge fan base. Uh, you know, really loyal, dedicated. I mean, huge huge relative, I guess, you know, for, for the kind of music, um, but uh, really dedicated, loyal fan base. That when we sell out shows at huge venues all over all over Europe, play big festivals, played Montreal Jazz Fest. You know, it's like United States. There's there's an audience, and, and depending on the city you go to, you may sell out like a 800 cap room or something um, in the states. But you know, in 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 France, we're playing like 3,000 cap rooms that are sold out and stuff. You know what I mean? Or or like just crazy. We played this tiny little town in France where. I was like there's not even anybody in this town and it's like people came from all the towns around to this big warehouse just completely filled this warehouse um, that's so cool yeah it's very very cool vibes um i wanted to ask you anyway about about your work with kitsune a little bit um you know Jana, my my wife uh, for the people listening is Jana nyberg and she was featured on all my life and another one. Oh, geez i didn't write it down um <laughs> yeah yeah don't stop and uh all my life was used in uh saints row four right the video game the really popular video game and uh and and don't stop was used in like smart car commercials and stuff like that um how how did that stuff come to be in terms of like your music being used in a video game we had people texting us like i love saints row four you know is that is that Gianna singing you know and uh i want to know is that the label handling all that did you have some hand in in licensing do you have any experience with licensing your music
1: yeah that one in particular was was entirely attributable to me just being friends with the guy who was in charge of like selecting the music for that game we oh went nice to college together yeah we're both trombone players sat next to each other all through college
0: wow no way yeah,
1: yeah. um yeah I think you, you've probably met him Kyle van Um oh, okay. and now he he uh, like his main focus was um, sound design but I think for that game in particular like he was kind of just like in charge of audio in general um, and and then for like the other other ones it was kind of like my manager just like found different companies that would shop stuff around and um, and honestly, it was like a black box for me. I would just like get an email saying, hey, they want to use this for this thing. Here's how much you get paid. And most of the time it was just like, yes, yeah. <laughs> sure.
0: Yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Um, cool.
1: Yeah. But I didn't get like a ton of syncs. Like that's something I feel like I could have probably pushed a little bit harder on because um, I've like over the years realized that like a lot of like friends who um, friends were full time in music, like, there, there are certainly people who are like better and worse at it. And, uh, yeah. And, and that's definitely like, as, as I learned with, like with my friend Kyle, like if you know the right people, like you can, you can get these amazing placements and it, and that's something that I really didn't expect with like the Saints Row 4 thing, because I I'm not a gamer. So I didn't know like how significant that is, but like you get it into the ears of millions of people.
0: Totally totally and a lot of those people will create playlists and put that song on their playlist just because they like listening to that song from the video game it's like those that's the experience totally. that that we heard of uh, of a friend of ours who plays saints row four and he's like yeah i got it on my playlist i'm always listening to that you know what i mean yep. um that's cool uh you know i'm curious about uh how you know it's like I, I, I imagine that a lot of our listeners will be people that are like trying to get into being artists themselves maybe having their music license maybe getting signed by a record label you talked about how you did a uh like a competition like a mixing competition or a remix competition you know i see those kinds of things a lot and it's always like a lot of times at least for me being sort of mid-career it's like an eye roll right it's like i don't have time to do this thing for free but it feels like that's the thing that like really helped launch your your career and uh it is like, did the deal with Kitsune happen because you had already had this substantial thing and so they knew who you were? Did your manager seek that out? Like, how did that deal happen?
1: Mm, that's a good question. Um, I am not really sure exactly what triggered it, but I remember when they did want to do an EP with me, like they they moved really quickly. And then subsequently, like I learned that, like, that was usually was not the case for them and a lot of, Boutique labels like them. Um, So, yeah, there was, I'm guessing like um, the Mike Posner tune probably had something to do with it. Um, And, but, but I mean, like, they're like more of like an underground, like indie label. So it, it likely was like a combination of that. And I probably had some stuff that had like popped on Hype Machine. um, Mm -hmm. So that was probably... other reason
0: what is hype machine
1: okay so hype machine was like is still around i think um but it was like the best website for my career that plus soundcloud and they kind of like worked in tandem yeah and and this kind of like gets us a little bit into the web 3 stuff because i i feel like hype machine was sort of like a precursor in a way to some of the things that are happening now um but the way it worked is um there are all these music blogs. This is like pre-Spotify days, and musicians had websites and MySpace pages. But the way that their music was distributed, especially if you're like an indie musician, was the music blogs. And so, hmm. um, people would post usually like a SoundCloud link uh, for every song in their blog, and then um, and they were all hooked up to RSS feeds that pipe machine would aggregate and so like it would collect all that data and like figure out it basically like create a leaderboard so it's almost like an indie billboard chart yep. that was updated every few days um and i think you could up and up and down vote as well i'm not sure about that exactly you could certainly like heart track so that probably like also affected the leaderboard in some ways um but yeah i had several songs that that made it i think to number one on that and um and yeah, that that definitely like fueled a lot of uh, a lot of my bookings for several years.
0: Wow. Yeah. So talking about SoundCloud uh, being a platform, you know, it's, this is sort of Web two, right? Where like you have a platform that allows you to do your thing, but it's not like you're and and the whole reason people are there is because you're putting content on the site, Instagram, Twitter. I mean, it's like the whole reason people are there is because people are putting their content on the site, but those people are not reaping any of the financial benefits of the content creation right that's what right. too so getting into web3 um i like i see the value in it i want to ask first there are so many artists who would kill to be where you were as gigamesh mm-hmm. when you made your transition why move to coding why learn to code why move to uh a, why, why change career lanes when things are going so well
1: um well, they—I mean—things are often like going better, like on the surface and like publicly, than they are privately. I think for especially like creators, yeah. um, and um, and and like the numbers can be deceiving. Like, for example, for me, I think I—you know—I still like on Spotify I have like over like three million plays per month or something. Yep. Um, but the vast majority of those are of remixes. I, there were work-for-hires where I got paid like. Two or three thousand dollars to do a remix for like a big artist that already had this built-in fan base and so like those Mm. and because they own the remix royalties um like all the streaming royalties just go to that artist
0: we're just going to pause there for a sec to say that this podcast is brought to you by the gig boss app janna and i created gig boss because we were leading our own groups freelancing and others touring teaching private lessons and doing freelance education work all while raising our two boys we needed a way to keep track of everything. Create a group, create an event and start organizing the madness. Gig Boss app is free on iOS and Android.
1: I had been working on this album like for way too long, like two years. Um, I moved to LA in 2015. um, And, and that kind of like helped. I got like gigs around town and, 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 I probably like helped in terms of like, you know, getting into studios and stuff. I did a little of that. Uh, but, um, but I could feel my career was like plateauing. And I remember there was like one comment that like, that really sticks in my memory where I got, <laughs> don't
0: out. read the comments. Don't read the comments. <laughs> no, this
1: was, this was a guy who like, and I, I don't think he meant anything by, it. he's a nice guy, but he's a, he was another DJ based out here um, who I had met. I think in miami and then he moved out here I, I lived in miami for like less than a year back in 2010 um and we both were booked to play on this like boat tour like off the coast and uh and like i was like oh hey man how are you doing he's like hey what's up what have you been up to you you really fell off didn't you
0: oh man <laughs> yeah my
1: heart was just like poosh. um but yeah, that was, that was kind of like the first sign, like, oh, shit, like, you know, I, I'm not making, I'm not putting out as, as much music as I should to like really keep this thing rolling. Yeah. Um, and I was still working on my album. I released that. It didn't, it didn't do as well as I expected. Um, and I, I put a lot of money into it, too, to promote it. Um, so yeah, like, and I had always thought about programming as like something that I wanted to learn eventually. Um, I was just really interested in tech and, and more than that, I was interested in something where I could have like a bigger, more like pragmatic, um, impact on the world rather than, I mean, like as a musician, you can, you can have, and, and this is something that I like gained an appreciation of over time. At the time, I, I don't think I really appreciated like how much that you are like creating value for people like you're, Yeah. Uh, I, I always like, I think part of the reason why I had a lot of writer's block is like, I, I felt like making music, especially dance music was just like some like self-indulgent thing. And then I, I was always like thinking, Oh man, I'm just doing this for money. Like, you know, all these things were like swirling through my head. Um, and, um, and I was getting more and more concerned about like big problems in the world. Like, yep. Yeah. Like, all the all the shit with social media and how that affects um you know everyone's psychology and like partisanship and and i was i i mean i had like fully dove into like partisan politics um in some ways good like i was campaigning for bernie and knocking on doors and stuff but um but it was like it was consuming way too much of my time and attention uh and and then, like, years later, I've realized, like, wh- I think why that was is that, um, like, the, the social media algorithms have just, like, put me into, like, these echo chambers and um, yep. and made me really, like, kind of, like, emotionally, like, triggered at all times. Uh, totally.
0: That's what it's built to do, right? I mean, that's what it's built to do. It's built yeah. to show us the stuff that's going to make us fiery and make us comment and make us stare at the screen for longer and then look at the next ad that scrolls by in our feed.
1: Yep. And, and then as a creator, like you're, you're competing for everyone's attention. So like, you're part of it. Uh, and, um, and then, so like when Facebook turned on their monetization and, and now you had to pay to get your, whatever you posted in front of the eyes of your fans. Um, I think that was kind of like a turning point. That was like, I don't know, probably 2014 or so. Um, and so so yeah like I I kind of like thought maybe I could keep this going I, I actually I'm pretty confident that if I had like put my whole heart and soul into it I probably could have like made some kind of like move that that would have reinvigorated my career in some way um
0: you know I wanted I wanted to ask too was it was it really writer's block or was it more like you're in this perfection you're a perfectionist and you want it to sound perfect or or like it was you- like
1: it was both it was like uh yeah like uh, perfectionism not not collaborating with enough musicians i think that really helps like get the creative juices flowing like i I was like too much of a control freak um and uh um but yeah so it was like a combination of just like the the challenges that like any creative struggles with plus all this stuff that was external that i've later realized was is like affecting a lot of musicians and oh, it yeah. is why like so many of them have become really interested in what's going on in web three.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: So yeah. yeah I, I, and I had like invested in Bitcoin in like 2013. I thought it was interesting, but by 2017, I, I really started to dive in because I learned about Ethereum. I learned about like the differences between the two um, learned about what smart contracts are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by the end of that year, I was thinking, well, if I learned how to code, like I could maybe work my way into whatever this is, and and have a, like a greater impact on on the, possibly the music industry, but but at least like some part of society, because like all all the people that I had been following in the space, I found to be really intelligent, really inspiring, um, and uh, and kind of like speaking my language. So yeah, yeah, that's me toward it.
0: Cool. So so on that note, could you give us sound.xyz, could you give us like a elevator pitch? Like w- w- why should fans and artists be considering jumping on your platform? Sure, Is it ready? So Is it done? Is it ready?
1: Yeah. I mean, like we, we launched on Ethereum mainnet uh, in November. Um, so far, I think we have about 55 musicians. Um and And the way that we describe it is that we're building web three tools for artists, and the first the first tool is what we're calling listening parties where an artist can upload some music and artwork, package it into an nFT I'm sure everyone listening has heard of those by now, and some people's <laughs> eyes are probably rolling.
0: yeah, the gateway to crypto for so many people, <laughs> but also very divisive. yes, I'd like to talk about that a little bit, but let's keep let's keep going on what you guys are doing
1: yeah, sure so um so yeah, like you, you can sell this thing to your your biggest supporters, and and then if you buy it as a fan, uh, you can like leave a supportive comment, like you would on like SoundCloud. Um, but that's just sort of like version one. Um, yeah. And
0: and part of Web three is like listening to users, right? And 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 then b- kind of building what the users want to exactly. do exactly. yeah yeah, that's
1: that's definitely our approach like we're we're just like constantly getting feedback we have like discord with with all our buyers and um anyone else like a a lot of artists are interested um but right now we're we're trying to like pace things so that we don't we don't want to like sacrifice like user experience and our team and our infrastructure just isn't big enough to like scale up super fast yet um so we're just focused on on improving the product and like um launching features that people are interested in like the the thing that we're about to unleash right now is um something i've been leading over the past few weeks which is um like letting artists do what they're already used to doing like in, in like um regular music distribution which is to split their royalties amongst all their collaborators but with web3 um like you can do that in like a much more like transparent way uh there there are some trade-offs because like obviously like every transaction on on ethereum like costs gas it's pretty expensive but yeah. um but f-
0: layer two is coming right i mean that's supposed to layer two is supposed to make that cheaper on ethereum is supposed right. to roll out in like june or something
1: yeah i mean like there are a lot of projects that, that are already live um but it's just a matter of, of projects like ours integrating them, which is like a pretty big technical challenge. Uh, but, but yeah, like we'll get there. Like that's definitely in in the cards. And, um, and so, yeah, like, uh, the, the splits thing is pretty exciting because, um, that's just like kind of a given, like, you know, artists like want to collaborate and they want to like share their proceeds, even, even amongst like record labels and like managers and all, all that kind of stuff.
0: So that stuff can be written into the smart contract theoretically
1: yep yeah you just like gather everyone's ethereum wallet address and plug it in and um and then as the funds come in like you hit the withdraw button and it gets distributed where it needs to go
0: Wow so could you uh for for listeners who are new to uh blockchain talk um crypto talk could you talk a little bit about what a, a smart contract actually is maybe so you're, you're built on the ethereum blockchain is that right? Mm-hmm. so maybe maybe a little bit of like what the blockchain is and and what smart contracts are
1: sure um so i mean what the blockchain is um how do i do this without going too deep because my habit is like to start <laughs> rambling um but yeah it, it like i mean i think most people have probably like heard that you know it's like a, just like a distributed computer network like a peer-to-peer computer network um and the reason why it's it's uh being referred to as web three now is um it it's basically like a new layer of the internet i I don't really think about it as like a completely new version of the internet it's like the way that we're using it and the way that most projects like ours are using it is it's it's sort of just like this other network that you're tapping into for for like the core functionality um but but other than that like it's it's you know you're just like building like a web application of like any other um and um and so like a smart contract is what is what enables like the the programmable like money transfer part of it um so in our case uh when an artist gets you know like right now like we we have like a sort of like a selection process like it's it's kind of like a gated thing but um once they're once they're like whitelisted to deploy their their contract, they can deploy their own artist contract, which basically like serves as the the catalog that they're going to have on sound for for the end of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, they can create an unlimited number of NFT editions. And each edition is, you can almost think of it as like a limited edition, like vinyl pressing, but it's digital. And, um, and so they, you know, they schedule the time that they want the sale to start. Um, they, what else do they put in there? Like the price right now, like we're, we're kind of trying to keep the price within like a pretty limited range the quantity, um, as well. And, um, and, and that's pretty much all there is to it. That's stored in the, in the contract and, um, and then like the, the web interface. Is basically just like using the blockchain information as the source of truth. So it's almost like one way people often describe it is like it's a new. It's it's basically like using the blockchain as your database, and um, and then like the the front end interface is is sort of like just uh, yeah. Like what what's really cool about it is like because the blockchain is like this distributed thing and has all the data like anyone right now would be able to build their own version of sound, like their own like web interface of sound using our data. And so that's kind of the direction that we want to go long-term is to, to make like the, the contract is like the protocol and the web interface is just like one of potentially many different experiences that people can build around it.
0: Wow. Cool. So one of my understandings is like, Uh, And I've said this on the podcast before, that like, when you mint an NFT, you can build into the smart contract that when whatever you mint is resold, that you also get a percentage of that sale. Is that how people are structuring things on sound right now? Do you see that where like... I know it says on Sound that uh, that like if you are the owner, if you become, if you are the buyer of the NFT, you can make a comment on it. But if you sell it, then your your comment gets removed, right? And so then somebody else can make like a a comment on it that that now owns it. Are people writing into those smart contracts that uh, they're getting a percentage of sales in the future?
1: Yeah, right now we have it hard coded so that every every um, secondary sale has a 10% royalty. Okay. Um, That is adjustable. um, But like, so, so for some of these parameters, we're basically like trying to like make it as easy as possible for artists and not like give them too many things that they have to decide on. Right. At least in the near term.
0: To me, like that's the, that's the big game changer to me because Mm -hmm. in the past you sell your, you sell a CD, you know, like you're not going to get paid again if somebody drops it off at uh, at some store and then it gets resold or something. Uh, you're not getting if you're an artist and you you've painted a, an amazing painting and uh, it sells for three hundred bucks and then you become a famous artist and it sells for three million dollars, you get zero of the three million dollars, right? So this totally. to me like this is this is the big game changer between what we have now and and what we could have or or are starting to build in the future.
1: Yeah, and what's and, and it can be used really creatively too, because like in the visual art NFT world, a lot of projects have done their primary sale for free. Like you're just paying like the gas cost of the transaction, but yeah. then there's this royalty. So like the, the original deployer artist, whatever they are doing can, um, can get that royalty over time. So like, they're still making money off of it
0: yeah so let's talk a little bit about gas costs let's talk about a little bit about and i know you're not like the spokesperson for web3 um but you know i want to address some of these issues you know i know that i have friends probably listening to this that like you said big eye roll uh crypto bro meckler you know um i'm sure there's I'm i'm sure there's a lot of that happening uh NFTs, blockchain technology. Is there anything you can say to folks who fear, for instance, uh, that crypto energy is inefficient or uh, that there's a lot of fraud happening in the space? Uh, what what can you say to things like that?
1: Yeah, I would say like on the fraud side, um, there, and this was this has been true of like every like technological movement since the beginning of time. Like, whenever there's some like exciting new technology, a bunch of people with like uh you know like bright ideas who like might not know what they're doing like start projects and so there's not a like there's a spectrum between like people who are just incompetent and then like people who are actually trying to rip you off yeah but then that that's the, the stuff that gets the most attention because it's just like you know it's um, yeah it's newsworthy i guess uh, but but that is something that
0: you have to own right as is something that the space has to own the space has to go yeah that is a problem but look at maybe but look at sound but look at these other companies that are really trying to do it right that are trying to do do things right by the artist right by the fan base uh you know and and maybe there's a collective movement to to sort of uh to to de-platform these fraudulent yeah uh,
1: exactly um yeah it's difficult because like the people who are working on the more legitimate interesting stuff they tend to not be like big self promoters um, and uh, and so they they don't get as much attention um, uh, but yeah like I, I think that is starting to change though there um, there's uh, certainly like within within like traditional media they're taking, despite like, you know, like all the fraud and like ridiculous speculation and stuff. I think most people do realize that it it's like interesting in technology. It's here to stay. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, but like, as far as like energy concerns go, like that is, that's like the biggest problem I have with it personally, because, uh, and it's something I kind of like struggle with because, um, it is, it is extremely like, computationally intensive energy intensive so um so yeah it's like as somebody concerned about climate change it bothers me the way i justify it is uh in ethereum um it's moving it's been like on the roadmap for years so like it hopefully this is going to be the year that it finally happens um, but it's going to be moving from what's called proof of stake to proof or sorry, proof of work to proof of stake, which is like that's way what, that, more energy
0: yeah, efficient. And, uh, and that's so. what's rolling out. The, apparently that's what's rolling out in June, I think, or June or July. That's, that's what I've been hearing. I'm, I, I listen to the bankless podcast regularly. Oh, and nice. That's yeah. one of the uh, things that they've been talking about. And they had Vitalik on the show who, who invented Ethereum. Right. And, and like has the right. roadmap for what they're trying to do moving forward.
1: Yeah. I've learned to like be skeptical of like any dates though, because for example, like I talked to Vitalik like back in like February or March of last year. And I asked him like, when do you think the merge is going to happen? And yeah. he said, mm, probably before the end of the year. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's summer of 2020. But, um, but yeah, it sounds like, like they've, they've been testing it. Like things are going well. So I don't see any reason why it would get delayed any longer.
0: Um, so that's going to take, now, that's going to cost less, less energy.
1: Yeah, it'll be that, that, but that's like the only benefit as far as I know in the near term is, uh, it'll just make the, the network like 1% as, as, uh, like energy, uh, intensive, but the, the scaling issues, that's kind of independent of that. That's kind of like the stuff that comes a little bit later. yeah. Um, but like that's so like they're they're like independent tracks like so one of the projects i worked for was called uh, optimism last year uh they are working on what's called an optimistic roll up. so that's the the layer 2 thing that you were referring to yeah those are almost like they're they're like uh well they're they're like what they sound like they're they're a network that's sort of like built on top of um mainnet ethereum and kind of inherit its security properties right. and and so the big brains like Vitalik are saying that that's kind of like the biggest hope that we have for, for um, making the transactions cheaper and faster over the next few years. Um, whereas like the sort of like the mainnet upgrades, like that's much more long-term um, that'll help with scaling as well. But, but we can like move faster using sort of like these alternative solutions that have like different trade-offs, but um, but are at least like live and working right now so so yeah that's pretty exciting
0: yeah wow yeah just i just saw uh the arc analysts predicted ethereum going to 180,000 per eth in within 10 within 10 15 years or, and and a million per bitcoin within 10 15 years i mean that's wild it seems like we're i mean it seems like we're we're very much still in the infancy of this technology and to me that's that's something that screams like hey there's gonna be there's gonna there's gonna be progress when it when it comes to uh the environmental impact of of what this is it's like I, I've, I've even read of companies that are trying to become energy neutral in some way like they're, they're making strides towards that uh have you heard of, have you heard of anything like that people really trying to uh to gr- make green solutions for this
1: yeah, it's you have to be a little bit um, skeptical, though, because it's very easy to start a new blockchain and say, hey, we're energy efficient when you don't have a lot of users. Um, and I think that's a lot of what has been going on um, because Ethereum like is so expensive and is still on proof of work. Um, it's easy to sort of like attack it that yeah. way. Um But, you know, like some of these other projects, I think like do have like some legitimate traction and there's like a lot of reason to believe that. um, Actually, yeah, I think it was a Bankless episode recently where they were talking about um, like different analogies for for how to think about uh, like, you know, like the the, the different networks and how they're all gonna be like potentially interoperable and how this all, all is gonna look in the future. And jumping um, from
0: chain to chain, uh, jumping jumping from chain to chain. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And the way that I, I think the, the the sort of like picture that resonates the most with me is each one is sort of like a city and, you know, cities like cities grow in population and they die out. uh, But, but by and large, like when you have a city, it it tends to grow and um, tends to like, Form connections with other cities, and so, so yeah, like it, it's it's pretty reasonable to expect that um, that like a lot of these other projects will will flourish, um, but that Ethereum and, and Bitcoin potentially, I'm I'm pretty skeptical of Bitcoin because like there's their community is so much about like not moving to a more energy efficient model. But, yeah, um, but I, I certainly believe that Ethereum is going to last far into the future.
0: Wow. Wow, that's interesting to hear. Skepticism of Bitcoin. Bi- there's so many Bitcoin maximalists, you know, people that that are Bitcoin and nothing else. Um, right. But there's a lot of people, you know, El Salvador is getting into the Bitcoin space now, right? And a lot of countries are sort of starting to adopt this. And it's interesting to see like the political thing. It's interesting to see like uh, when the United States are all of a sudden more, maybe more interested or more open to cryptocurrencies now that China and Russia are interested in it or whatever. It's just like it's. You know it's pretty wild to, to watch all this happen I know that it's a pretty big threat to to, to centralized banks and uh, and uh, and that's you're, I mean it's like you're really messing with the big dogs when you when you when you're coming up with a new a new way of being able to handle uh, payments in a decentralized way um, I think that's at once very interesting and at once uh, really promising as well and I tend to be an optimist Um, surrounding all this stuff you know and so i i really see the value in it as an artist uh, especially now and i've always i've really felt like we're in this uh we're in we're in this like middle stage between when we were able to sell physical things and and what the internet brought us which was just like hey stream my music for nothing so it's like we're this is this is i see this period these these last couple decades maybe as this like interim between artists figuring out how to how to do it right and here you are an artist on the ground floor of a company that's really trying to solve this problem i think that's so cool uh for for artists that are interested in sound dot xyz wanting to get in are you guys screening artists when they apply like how how does that process work applying as an artist and wanting to mint nfts
1: yeah um yeah i think we might still have like a like an intake form but to be honest like i almost I'm reluctant to even direct people to that because we have like such a long list of artists who want to get on it right now that, um, we're, uh, we're basically just telling people like, you're just going to have to like wait until we like are able to scale up so that it's more like self-serve. Like we're, we have an invite system right now. So we have like the, this, uh, cohort of Genesis artists there are about 20 of them. They each got an invite to onboard another artist. So, The way it's probably going to play out is we'll increase the number of invites we'll give invites to like you know people have come later and um and eventually we'll probably uh either give invites or create some kind of like voting mechanism for for sound holders buyers Uh, and then eventually um what what i'd love to see is if like we can build some sort of like web three hype machine where like, even if you're not a buyer or an artist, you can like vote your favorite artist onto the platform and like maybe get some, like, you know, some perks of doing that. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's all like very much like future scope. But, um, but yeah, the biggest thing that I could say is like join our discord, um, start like hanging out with other musicians and you'll, you'll probably get noticed and like, it'll probably like, help get you an invite at some point in the future
0: cool man i might have to do that myself i'm uh i'm quite interested hey uh thank you so much man for taking the time to do this i really appreciate this was so awesome it was informative i i loved hearing about your career as gigamesh and i hope that that continues i think your music is great man I, i i went down a rabbit hole getting ready for this interview just listening to a ton of your stuff uh i'd love to hear you make more music but i understand that you're betterment of the world right now doing great things and that's awesome so hey appreciate it man
1: thanks so much adam yeah this this was a lot of fun and awesome. uh and you're a podcaster pro i gotta say hey
0: all right i'm glad to hear it <laughs> i'm glad to hear it i do enjoy it i i spent a lot of time doing radio interviews promoting my stuff and i've always liked being on the mic so this is fun for me to do this i'm, I'm enjoying it a lot
1: nice well yeah i really appreciate it and um tell jan i say hi hope your kids are doing well
0: yeah they're having fun. Playing in the snow, baby. Lots and lots of snow up here in WP. I love it. Yeah. Thanks, man. See you.
1: Thank you. Have a great day. See you. Yeah,
0: you too.